there's all these different attempts at funding open source, but for every person that does offer money in in some way, there's going to be 10 people who don't. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, Sub-Zero edition. It is negative five with the wind chill where I am in the Hudson Valley. Cassidy Williams, one of my co-hosts, is in the Chicago area. What kind of weather are you looking at these days, Cassidy? It's actually been weirdly mild, which is probably concerning because, you know, right. it shouldn't be. Either but- it's cold or it's climate change. Right, exactly. We've got a balmy 10 degrees <laughs> Ooh, today. I know. Ryan, how Watch about out. you? What are you looking at? I got a winner at 16. Bring out the swimsuits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Stack Overflow podcast, place to talk all things software and technology. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined by Cassidy Williams of Remote and Ryan Donovan, my colleague here at Stack Overflow. Today, we're going to kick off chatting about a link about open source libraries that got corrupted, and then more generally, a topic we've touched on a lot, which is the degree to which you know everybody relies on certain open source projects or libraries and you know what it means to maintain those. So Cassidy, can you talk to me a little bit about what happened here, just sort of set the scene? Yeah, and so... In the open source world right now, there's a bit of chaos where there's these these two JavaScript libraries, Faker.js and Colors.js, which they're kind of basic utilities, but a lot of people use them. A lot of people use them and, and they're dependencies for a lot of libraries. And I think because they have been corrupted by the developer who is using them, there's a lot of questions right now about paying open source developers having really set versions so that way these corrupted libraries don't affect your code bases and kind of just security around all that and how open source maintainers are treated. And and it's definitely a topic that has been talked about a lot in general and, and is very reminiscent of LeftPad many, many years ago for anyone who was doing web development back at that point where there was a JavaScript library called LeftPad where the developer deleted it suddenly and everything broke around <laughs> the internet that was using this library. And, and mm-hmm. thus various <laughs> technologies were born like Yarn to try to protect from things like that. And, and the topic is back up again about what do people do when the people who are pretty much working for free decide they don't want to work for free anymore. Yeah, I think, Cassie, you brought this up earlier, and I thought it was a good point. You know, we want to be respectful of the person who made these changes, the reason they made them. We're not going to sort of like villainize them or or make guesses about that. But do you have to get to a certain point where, you know, you have a certain reputation as a maintainer and you're able to make these changes without really getting permission from anybody? Or is literally anybody can go in and make these kinds of changes when we're talking about libraries like this? If you're a maintainer, you can do whatever you want. Right, right. That happens all the time. Like if you're a maintainer, you get to do it. You get to do whatever mm. you want. But if there's like a, a group, a board, a, a list of collaborators, it, it depends on how mm. your open source organization is run. Right. There's pretty much always some central core group of people or a person who gets to say what. Right. So like how many maintainers are within, you know, a popular set of libraries like this? Like how many people get to make these kinds of moves? You know, it varies. Some of these libraries are definitely much more 
much more organized than others. Like if you were to look at Vue.js, for example, that right. is entirely human run, community run. It, it's not owned by a company or anything. They do have sponsorships and stuff, but there's like Evan Yu who created Vue, but Evan is not always the be all end all for all decisions because the, he has quite the organization around him, right. around Vue.js maintaining it. I don't know if it's the same for Colors.js right, or, right. or for Faker.js. So just looking at the uh, NPM for Faker, there is one maintainer. Yeah, one and for Colors.js, it's under this one maintainer's the, this one maintainer's GitHub, but it's used by 4.3 million people. Not a good ratio. <laughs> yeah. A different kind of than Twitter, but not a good ratio. So yeah, that makes sense. Well, I guess the blockchain solves this, right? You build oh, in gosh. incentives and you <laughs> used your your stake in the network to vote. And then you don't have to worry about this kind of thing. No, I'm just kidding. You have the same problem because there's one person with stake in the network. There's one person yeah. who's contributing. They get to do whatever they want. This was a topic that was brought up a lot back when I was working at React Training in 2019, 2020, because we would teach React workshops all over the place, but we also maintained React Router, which is also used by millions of people. And it's the most popular routing solution for React. And the two founders of React Training, now Remix, are the creators of React Router. And they weren't paid anything worthwhile to maintain it. They're just like, well, we kind of just have to. And it sucks because we get no income from this gigantic thing. And and it's great because it does give them clout in the developer community. Right. It has gotten them very involved. They've learned a lot from it. They've met so many cool people, but that doesn't pay the rent. Yeah, clout and 10 bucks yeah. will get you a sandwich. Okay, I, I'm not, now I'm not being facetious. Before I was being facetious, but now I'm not. So this is, I do think, the one thing that a lot of these blockchain Web3 things get right is that from the beginning, you build in a financial incentive to participate. So if you were to say, look, I'm going to create a new open source project and I want to make sure as many people get to use it as possible, but because it's going to be, you know, like sort of transparent and recorded in some way, so I know when folks are using it and we're going to set up a licensing so that anybody who uses it more than a thousand times a month or whatever the scale is that implies you're a serious operator, you know, then you're going to pay into this fund and that fund will be used to remunerate all the people who are maintainers or creators. Like, that is sort of the missing link, right, Ryan? We wrote a, po- a blog about this. Is like, yeah, I mean, I think the blog post we published about it was about there are ways to you know compensate folks, whether it's a Patreon, whether it's big companies contributing source code, or whether they have kind of open source plus business models where you're paying for you know a compiled package and support, right? But I think for you know small small things like this, like People are using it, but there's there's no guardrails on it. I mean, Cassidy, you tell me what you think. At like, right, as you were saying, like with your earlier React project or this one, you know, right, when you get to the scale of several million people are relying on it, that's the point where you w- would love a system that says, okay, each of these folks who's using it as a dependency pay 10 cents a month. And that at the mm-hmm. scale of 3 million people means, you know, we can fund a full-time maintainer or whatever it is, right? Yeah, but then... There will be an alternative that doesn't cost money. <laughs> like <laughs> people don't want to spend money. Right. So that's the core of it. And and I'll use the remix folks as an example again. So for a little bit of context, I worked for them at React Training, and because it was fully traveling company in the pandemic, that doesn't go so well. And so they had to lay off all staff, and and so that is why I ended up leaving. And they decided to create the remix framework 
after that in, in the pandemic to be just like, let's, let's build this framework we've always wanted to make. And at first it was a paid framework. You could use it mm-hmm. if you paid for a license. They had open collective stuff set up so you could donate. They had a community and, and it was like a lifetime license. And then also like corporate licenses, they had a very good system set up, but they gained almost zero traction by having a license. And then the moment that they decided, okay, we're actually going to raise money from VCs and go open source completely and and it's free to use, their popularity has been skyrocketing as a result. That's just... Yeah, right. Even that little bit of friction of like, we're going to charge you 10 cents a month, but that means you have to accept this license and, you know, auth in with your wallet here is what makes the difference between widely adopted and right. not. Right, yeah. exactly. People don't yeah. want to spend money on the internet if they don't have to. Even people making money on the software, big companies just want, right. you know, the easy open source. So this is like a failure of the commons. This is like a don't look up situation where it's like, we're just every six months we're going to have, you know, an open source disaster like this. And we just, it's par for the course because like... As people, we can't, we don't really operate any other way. Is that what you're telling me? Like, uh, there's no solution here? I don't mind. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I would wager so. Like, if you're relying on, you know, people's goodwill to support, you know, foundational things for inter- the internet and projects on the internet, like, at some point, somebody's going to get mad or decide to leave the project or have personal issues and, and, your dependency is screwed. Mm. Right. And there, there are quite a few companies and startups and stuff out there trying to solve this. I think mm. it's just one of those things where there's no standards for it yet. It's mm. it's like that XKCD comic where everyone's like, man, there's six different ways to do this. There need, we need to fix this. There are now seven different standards. Mm. Like that happens. <laughs> yeah. But uh, right, right. Open Collective is trying to solve it. Um, I was just talking to Flossbank recently who are trying to solve it. Like there, there's all these different attempts at funding open source, but for every person that does offer money in in some way, there's going to be 10 people who don't. Places like NPM kind of created the utopia of being able to access, you know, any open source project at any time. But like you said, who's going to pay for it? So this is really more about developer education and just being like, look, you know, know that when you're using NPM, this may happen to you. Here's how you respond quickly to get back to a working state? I I think NPM automatically updates. Is that right? Yeah. And it automatically updates, but you can, you can have like a lock file in your code bases. Mm -hmm. And then there's people have already made forks of old versions and stuff. And so there's a a lot of options there to protect yourself. I think a big part of getting a lot of these open source libraries paid and, and something that I think would be is probably the direction it needs to go, but I'm not going to solve any of the world's problems on this podcast. But oh, come on. You gotta at least I'm try. trying, but <laughs> I just need everybody to listen to me because I'm right about everything. I think companies just need to pay open source maintainers mm-hmm. because yeah. there are plenty of individuals who use all these libraries. And a lot of times it's for hobby projects or because they're experimenting and stuff, but companies that are relying on these projects for their infrastructure that like, if it were to go down, profits would go down, right. they're the ones who should be paying these maintainers. I mean, that's really the rub. I think you were saying before, like, yeah, get traction and get to scale by offering it for free. But when an organization that has its finances on the line starts using it, that's when they need to pay in. So that's kind of the mechanism that needs to be built is to make that easier and transparent and simple for the maintainers to ask and for the, those companies to pay in. That, that kind of makes sense to me. You know, whether you set it by number of people in the organization or 
amount of yearly income, it's still self-reported. Right. And somebody's going to be like, well, I'm going to tell them something else and I'm going to have this dependency in there for free. And I guess people also get a little salty sometimes when corporations try to sort of own the governance or get very involved and people sort of get salty about that part of it. it cuts both ways. Tired of overpaying for cloud infrastructure? Try Vulture instead. Vulture offers up powerful cloud compute and simplified instance management at a fraction of the cost of the other guys. Visit Vulture, V-U-L-T-R dot com slash stack to redeem $100 in credit today. Okay, I thought this was very interesting. I know we promised not to talk all about crypto, but Moxie Marlin Spike, the founder and CEO of Signal, is stepping down as the CEO. Signal was something that was super important when I was in the world of journalism, was super important to activists, and is kind of on the one far edge of the spectrum in terms of supporting total end-to-end encryption, which can be a good thing and a bad thing, depending on who's using it, and puts them into conflict sometimes with, with governments and law enforcement, what I think is typically very popular among developers and programmers and cryptographers who tend to favor, you know, sort of full personal privacy. But in our like sort of ongoing discussion of decentralized versus centralized, Marlon Spike is a cryptographer and decided to play around with Web3, make some NFTs, made some kind of interesting ones. We'll include it in the in the show notes. But the super interesting thing, I guess, that I got out of this was that so much of the activity that's happening where people are saying, this is amazing, you know, we're a DAO, we're a self-governed organization, we own this, it's all on the blockchain, nobody can control us, and we're giving these NFTs to you and nobody else can own them, actually just like runs through three or four centralized infrastructure providers because... Otherwise, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be as simple as opening an app wallet and handing somebody an NFT. And when you get down to it, like what you believe is, you know, this sort of like immutable decentralized activity happening on the blockchain is really just an API call <laughs> to a centralized platform mm-hmm. that you are trusting, whether you know it or not. So I thought that was kind of a, a fascinating post and kind of yeah. put a lot of things in perspective for me. It's interesting. I read a uh really interesting Twitter thread yesterday. And I didn't want to share it because I didn't want this to become the, you know, the crypto Olympics. But it was sort of talking about what an NFT really is. And it's just the token. For it to be usable, there has to be infrastructure built up around it. It's just like a pointer to a JPEG or to some, some you know, a gun in a game. And to use that, somebody has to build something around yeah. that. At this point, there are basically two companies. Almost all dApps, decentralized apps, use either Infura or Alchemy in order to interact with the blockchain. In fact, even when you connect a wallet like MetaMask to a dApp and the dApp interacts with the blockchain via your wallet, MetaMask is just making calls. These client APIs are not using anything to verify blockchain state or the authenticity of responses. The results aren't even signed. An app like Autonomous Arch just says, hey, what's the output of this view function on this smart contract? Alchemy or Infura responds with a JSON blob that says, this is the output and the app renders it. So it's kind of like, you may think, you know, you've left behind the centralized internet and you're on web three, but really there's a a web wrapper and an API wrapper that's Mm -hmm. making all of this feel seamless and approachable to you. And which means you're not really interacting directly with the blockchain, whatever that may be. I think that one of these providers, I forget which one actually went down somewhat recently Mm. Because of like an AWS outage or something like <laughs> oh, that. No. And people were right. just like, wasn't this the whole point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's right. yeah, that's still hilarious. early days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If an AWS outage can take down the 
API calls that power my ability to interact with the blockchain, what do I really gain? <laughs> Except I'm get to pay. I have the privilege of paying a hundred dollars per transaction, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, lucky you. Lucky me. You know. Also, the the thread was talking about. You know, we already have an infrastructure that works pretty well for these sort of things. Like, you're not getting anything extra by having it on the blockchain yet. Right. And I'll say yet because you know at some point we may have killer use cases that make nfts the thing that you need for all your digital items but right now it's just a token at a video game parlor yeah and if the video game parlor closes down you have a piece of metal yeah i think for just as a last note on this article one thing that i thought was interesting was that they made an nft that changes based on who's looking at it Mm -hmm. and they were just like oh this might be kind of interesting where it looks like starburst type of thing on on open sea and then on rareable it's it's kind of just like sound waves or something and then if it's just in a wallet it looks like the poop emoji <laughs> and somehow it was just removed from open sea open sea was just like no you can't do this right. but then it was removed from his wallet yeah and suddenly it was, it was this whole thing and it was just like so this this isn't decentralized. Yeah, exactly. This, this right. is just you guys controlling things. This is totally yeah. Central Chris Dixon was trying to troll Web two and say, oh, you know, Instagram took away the meta handle from so and so. That's why we're Web three. But OpenSea is just recreating all those problems, right? They don't want to be trolled either. So there's so many things where I've genuinely tried to understand it, and there's I think it's just such early days that it's it's yeah. hard to not just be skeptical because in its current state. So many things are broken. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it sounds like a fascinating technology. It's fascinating. You know, I love decentralization, right. but how do you get there? Git was decentralized and then there was GitHub. <laughs> and I mean, it, it, GitHub has generally been a good thing. People have a central place to put a bunch of their code and, and distribute a lot of their code. Right. There's a lot of software that's been decentralized and then centralized because people do like having a hub for things. Mm-hmm. So... This concept isn't new. It's just the way we're going about it is different. And the way we're both demonizing and worshiping it is different too. All right. Well, one quick shout out. We launched Collectives last year on Stack Overflow. And that sort of is a place where we'll organize a whole bunch of questions by tag. So if you want to talk about stuff related to Golang, for example, you can go to the Golang Collective. And the nice thing about being there, aside from being just asking a question randomly on the broader Stack Overflow Stack Exchange Network, is that folks who are actually working on Golang and part of the core team hang out there and will help to answer questions or they'll put a stamp of approval on something and say, this is the best answer. And there's also recognized members. So folks from the community have attributed a ton to answering questions and submitting stuff about Golang, sort of get you know a little bit of status there and that enables you to sort of trust them and you know they're contributing. So we asked, we enabled people there to write articles and there's a bit of push and pull with the community about the best way to do that. So yesterday we released a proposal for sort of article submissions and how people will do that. So it's it's pretty interesting because like for the first time ever, we're, we're trying on Stack Overflow to allow people to do something besides Q&A, you know, to write a how-to, a best practices, to explain why a certain project was built a certain way. And so there's now sort of a, speaking of open source and distributed governance, a, a proposal mm-hmm. out there for how people can submit articles to the admins and recognized members, get it sort of approved as being you know, of value to this collective. And then from there, they can go ahead and publish and share that with everybody. So if you're interested in collectives or just sort of what we're working on Stack Overflow, go check it out. I think articles have a lot of potential. So excited to see that that change happen. 
All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. I will shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge. Let's shout out a lifeboater awarded yesterday to K Nelson 59406 how to deploy spring 5.x on tomcat 10.x a spring mvc hello world application running on tomcat well if that means something to you and you're interested check it out in the show notes i don't think i've used tomcat since college this is that took me back there (laughs) for a second cool yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. I am uh, Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, please email us at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm Cassidy. I am at remote, not just like remote work remote.com and you can find me at casado c-a-s-s-i-d-o-o on most things all right everybody thanks for listening and we will talk to you soon Bye. bye